Some things shouldn't be transparent, like stop signs. But what you pay for should always be clear, like Hiller's true transparency pricing, always clearly itemized and never any hidden fees. Because you have the right to know what you're paying for. For more information, visit happyhiller.com slash true transparency pricing. Happy you'll be of the services free. Call the Happy Face Truck today. The Zone's non-stop sports talk continues with a look at Nashville's teams and at news around the nation from the lead writer of 1045thezone.com. This is the Big Six. The Big Six with Jason Martin. And here we go. Straight up, 6 o'clock by my watch means it's time for the one and only Big Six here on 104.5 The Zone. Glad to have you with us. Thank you very much for joining me. I'm Jason Martin. I'm on Twitter at jmartzone, 615-737-1045, 737-1045 to join me tonight. I am blessed beyond measure. Hopefully you recognize that you are as well. A lot to get to. Told you a couple days ago I wanted to talk about Carson Wentz. But there was so much sort of back and forth between me and the callers as it related to the NFL overtime rule, which is still the worst rule in all of sports. I will still talk about it. I will talk about it until the end of time. But tonight I'm going to try and talk about some other things going on in and around the world of sports. But I will talk about Carson Wentz this evening. And I've got to talk about the no call on Sunday and how it's about time to let this thing die, especially after hearing this Benjamin Watson statement that was put out earlier today people have lost their sanity over this but the big story in nashville last night certainly was tennessee vanderbilt and i'll just go ahead and ask the question now it's been asked all day if you have not had a chance to chime in 615-737-1045 ryan albanese is my producer he's behind the glass spinning the dials for me this evening and he is ready to take your phone call as well did vanderbilt get robbed in this game on the flagrant foul or something else, whatever it might be, there has certainly been some debate today as to whether or not Vanderbilt got screwed. Now, that call was bad. There's no question about it. Tennessee benefited from it. Also, no question about that. But if I'm just putting out there numbers that would indicate what actually took place here, if you you can include that all you want, but Vandy turned it over not once, not twice, but three times in a final stretch of regulation. Three turnovers by the doors in four possessions. And then you look at the free throw shooting statistics. I heard Drew Maddox say this. I didn't have to hear him say it. I watched it take place last night. They were 61.9% from the strike. 13 for 21. Tennessee, on the other hand, was 29 for 32. That's plus 16 from the free throw line for the Vols. 90.6%. Grant Williams, 43 points and 8 rebounds. Vanderbilt was 13 of 21 from the free throw line. The University of Grant Williams was 23 of 23 from the free throw line. Now, if I were a Vandy fan today, I don't know how I could feel anything but proud of that team's effort. They played their guts out in that game. And even if they did have those same guts ripped out in overtime, they pushed themselves and they made UT fans beyond nervous. 
Trust me, I was around one. That struggle was real. They shot the ball well from distance. UT nearly shot themselves out of the number one ranking from beyond the arc. But that free throw performance overcame the three-point woes. And it nullified a lot of the impact of it. That plus 16 made a huge difference in the game. But there were long stretches where Tennessee was taking three-pointers early in a shot clock, not moving the basketball around, not challenging Vanderbilt to play defense. And it was not a great shooting night overall for Tennessee. And then there's this other story that's come out about how Bryce Drew avoided Grant Williams intentionally on the handshake. Now, that was an incredibly tough loss. Gut-wrenching kind of loss from Vanderbilt, but I don't buy that for a minute. There was a whole lot going on there. Now, if this were Kevin Stallings, okay, maybe we can buy that story. I mean, he was the Zodiac killer in David Fincher's movie. Maybe not the classiest guy by any stretch. Actually, we know he's not the classiest guy. But Bryce Drew, Teresa Walker, the AP, tweeted out that Bryce Drew actually shakes the hands of every media member before his availabilities. That is rare. That is not something that you see very often. Bryce Drew has not come across as anything but classy in his time at Vanderbilt. He was outstanding last night. He got fantastic minutes from Saban Lee, and Saban Lee has a nasty little miniature hardened step back on his J. There were a couple of times where he was able to create space that was not there with a step back three-pointer, including one late in the first half that really helped to sort of ignite that run that Vanderbilt made. He played great basketball. Neesmith played great basketball. She, too, played great basketball. Those three guys were on point last night. Matt Ryan shot it pretty well. Took a couple of ill-advised shots that he did not need to take, but he also played overall solid basketball. And then I saw a UT team that gave way too much cushion during that stretch where Vanderbilt got themselves back into it. Now, Saban Lee created that cushion, but there was some soft defense being played. Not that they weren't playing physical. They were just providing too much space. It was kind of like the way we felt about how Tennessee, the Titans secondary, looked against the Colts in the final regular season game where it felt like they were just giving a little bit too much room to the Colts wide receivers. Once they got rolling, though, meaning Vanderbilt, Vols had all they could handle. That was a great sporting event last night. 88-83, Vols win the ballgame. The question I asked off the top of this show, 615-737-1045, if you want to join me and answer it is, do you think that Vanderbilt got robbed because of the flagrant foul? Do you think that that hook by Jordan Bone should have been called differently? There are arguments, I guess, that can be made, certainly on the second one, the first one, I don't know that you could say they were robbed, but it was a bad call, and it's one that Tennessee certainly, certainly benefited from. No question about that. So overall watching this game, I'm sitting here, and I've got a problem. That was a great basketball game. That was a blast at Memorial Gym at 15-2. to It looked over. It felt over. I tweeted that it was over, but it was not over. And, of course, I had to eat that because one of you fine people sent that Tweet to Fred Siegel, my pal over at Old Takes Exposed, Freezing Cold Takes. Who he's, he's a great guy, by the way. He's a lot of fun. But yeah, he took me to task last night, as he should have, because I said, at 2 nothing, I tweeted out, that's too much for the doors. 
Then at 15 to 2, I said, okay, that was a joke at 2 nothing. It's not a joke now. Tennessee's really good. Vanderbilt's not. They got unlucky, of course, with the injury, but this is not going to be close. I mean, it was a two possession game. So, you know, but I got buried on it. It felt like it was over and it wasn't over. Grant Williams had to have one of the great performances in UT history and one of the great free throw performances in college basketball history to get a five-point win over a Vandy team that played like that was their national championship game. They fought that hard. And I can understand why you would think that when you're 0-5, and of course now in 0-6, but you're 0-5 and and you're 9-8, and probably going to be a real tough road to hoe if you're going to make it into the big dance unless you put on some kind of magical run in the SEC tournament. But Bryce Drew coached a great game. The attack was awesome. The Vols taking some bad shots early in the shot clock. They looked a little desperate at times. They weren't working through their offense consistently. They escaped Alabama, and you could say that they escaped here as well, but they did escape. But I've got a problem. Maybe you can help me out with this. College football, NFL, these are kind of excluded. But I sometimes have a really difficult time caring about regular season sports. Now, this was a rivalry game with a great atmosphere in our city. But had Tennessee lost, how big a deal would it really have been for them? It would have been a big win for Vanderbilt. But Tennessee's getting into the NCAA tournament with a high seed. And at some point, because 68 teams get that opportunity, it makes sitting down to watch a lot of college basketball feel sort of like a futile, meaningless exhibition. Now, it's even worse in the NBA. 82 games... Usually less than four teams have a legit chance to win it all, and you know that before the first regular season game is even played. Now, somebody might surprise you like the Nuggets are playing this year. The Nuggets were good last year, but they're still playing better basketball than maybe people assumed. But are you really going to vote and say that the Denver Nuggets are going to win the NBA championship when you look at the Golden State Warriors? The answer is no. You're going to bet on the Golden State Warriors, who, of course, are returning to form, and now here's DeMarcus Cousins, and they look like they're an utter freight train headed downhill. Then you look at the East, and before the season, what were the teams that you thought that had a chance? Well, it was the Celtics, and it was the Sixers, and the Bucks are good, but the Bucks aren't going to actually get the job done. But they've got a shot to make some noise. And then there's Toronto, of course. And then outside of that, there's just a bunch of teams that maybe could create havoc, but not teams that you believe in. And really, when you get down to it, as good as the Bucs are, are you going to bet on the Bucs? They've never done it before. They've never had to do it before. They've got young guys that have never been asked to do it before, have not succeeded when requested to do it before. Boston has been there and done that. They are deficient in some ways. But again, less than about four chance, four teams that have a legit chance. you got the Warriors. Maybe you got the Rockets. I don't think you do. Hard is being asked to score 50, and they're still losing games. And then you look at Major League Baseball and they play 162 games in a regular season. And what's interesting about that is it still somehow often comes down to the final week or the final game or sometimes even a playoff as we saw last year to see who makes it. So maybe this stuff does matter more than it feels like, but we're going to have an SEC tournament coming up that's going to be fun to watch. But what does it really mean unless a Vanderbilt that's not going to make the tournament or a team like that gets an automatic bid making some kind of magical run? I absolutely love sports, obviously. But when the stakes aren't there, it can be hard for me to stay invested on the weekend and sit down for a triple header. Sit down and watch some 
you know, middle of the road ACC game and then flip over and watch some Big 12 game on ESPN and Bob Wachusen and Fran Fraschiller are calling and then even a good night game between two top 15 teams. I don't know that there's an answer here. I really don't because you can make the argument that every regular season can become futile. And I need a new mentality to all this so I can get hyped for hoops games in January that aren't rivalry games in my own state. And I ask you the question, am I alone here? Or do you find it more difficult, especially in college basketball, because of the way the postseason is structured? We spend so much time fielding calls here on the station or arguing for or against a four-team college football playoff. It should be six. It should be eight. It should be 16. It should be 12. All I know is we watch every week because every week can be the end of someone's season. The NFL 16 games is always a dogfight for those wild cards. Sometimes it's a dogfight for the divisions, and those things matter. Now, I look at the NCAA tournament, and I see the NCAA tournament as a wonderful event, but one that negates much of the impact of the regular season. So are sports about the long, drawn-out season, or are they about the events? If you get the postseason right, that's like getting your movie right in the end. Maybe it dragged in the first half, but then the second half was gangbusters, and when you got to the climax... You were hooked. I just need to start watching more college basketball, but I'm still having a hard time sitting down. Right now, Cincinnati and Tulsa are playing. 14-40 left in the first half. Cincinnati with a 12-6 lead over Tulsa. Cincinnati 16-3, so they're going to the tournament. Tulsa's 12-7, and eh, maybe, but even if they do, do I think Tulsa's going to make noise? Maybe they upset somebody in the tournament, but I'm just trying to find a reason to care on this. Up next, and again, give me your thoughts at 615 737 1045 on that. Am I alone? Are you loving regular seasons all the time? Is there an answer to this? Do we just have to grin and bear it and watch sports just to see who wins these games and not necessarily have to view it through the prism of who's going to ultimately win in March? 615-737-1045. Up next, this Carson Wentz story from a couple of days ago. What do you think about stories with anonymous sources? We'll talk about it next. This is the Big Six on 1045 The Zone. Gang of youths for you here tonight. Big six here on 104.5 The Zone. I'm Jason Martin on Twitter at jmartzone. 615-737-1045. Join me, Ryan Albanese, our producer, doing a great job as always. I'm going to talk about the NFC title game again, and I know we've got Mark and Franklin, so we'll get to that. And I just read Benjamin Watson's statement. <sighs> My goodness. But I want to talk about Carson Wentz a little bit. If you have not heard about this story, happened a couple of days ago. And what I want to ask you is, how do you feel about strongly negative stories about an individual where not one source can be named when it's all anonymous? And I, I've begun increasingly trusting these things less and less. And that's not to say they can't be true, but not one person on the record and the content is just incredibly damning towards someone. And that bothers me. And that brings us to this Philly Voice article that released a few days ago on Eagles quarterback Carson Wentz. Now, the Eagles season is over. They lost to New Orleans. And when a team loses, people begin to talk. 
But in this case, Philadelphia turned around a season where it sure looked like they were dead in the water before the playoffs ever began. And they came awfully close to upsetting the Saints and playing in the NFC title game themselves. And Philly's got a big decision to make as it relates to Nick Foles. And certainly Nick Foles has a big decision to make about his own future. He wants to be a starting quarterback. He wants what he feels he's worth. And it's likely his value is never going to be higher than it is right now. The critiques of Carson Wentz grew exponentially once he was shut down for the year and Foles took that job. And the team began winning some games. But nothing like this has ever been said, at least until this piece at phillyvoice.com from Joseph Santaloquito. Notice I'm giving out his name because even though he has none to offer as sources, I want to make sure you know he's the author. His integrity is the one that could be on the line here. And I'm not saying it should be because it's hard to source stuff like this because who would actually put their name behind this? But here, I'm just going to read this directly from this article. Indeed, sources describe Wentz as incredibly hardworking, determined, and highly intelligent. But the true Wentz is nuanced and complicated with sources describing him as selfish, uncompromising, egotistical, one who plays favorites and doesn't like to be questioned, one who needs to practice what he preaches and fails to take accountability. Carson Wentz's biggest enemy is Carson Wentz. He's had his butt kissed his whole life and sometimes acts like he's won 10 Super Bowls when he hasn't played in, let alone won, a playoff game yet. Everyone around him wants good things for him. He did more thinking on the field than he did playing. You don't have to be a brain surgeon or a football expert to see how differently this team plays and reacts with one guy as opposed to the other. Santa Liquido has several unnamed Eagles claiming that Wentz had a tendency to complicate the offense and that he, quote, bullied, unquote, offensive coordinator Mike Groh. He reportedly didn't want to run the same concepts and plays that had worked a season prior because, quote, that was Foles stuff, unquote. That report also says that former offensive coordinator Frank Reich, now the Indianapolis Colts head coach, and former quarterbacks coach John DeFilippo, who is now in Jacksonville, were able to, quote, rein Wentz in and stop him from going off point, unquote, making sure he ran the offense and didn't freelance outside of the team's scheme. Foles, meanwhile, described as running the offense through its progressions and quickly hitting the open receiver. And then he has to return to who Carson Wentz is. That comes with relaxing and not forcing things. It also comes with being able to take constructive criticism. He has to learn that it's not always about him, and that's partly what hurt this team this year. We do know what type of player he can be and who he normally is. He needs to realize it's the Philadelphia Eagles, not the Philadelphia Carsons. A little humility goes a long way. So he's hardworking, but... And isn't it interesting, ladies and gentlemen, how our lives often exist in the butt? That's where the true feelings come out. That's where the dishonesty can begin. It's where gossip can become the order of the day. But it's also sometimes where truth lives. Here, we really have no idea. But it's not positive if if you're Carson Wentz or a fan of his. That much we do know. It would seem to indicate support for Nick Foles. And... Questions about Carson Wentz. So what happened in the response to this? Well, teammates with names stood up and called it garbage, including Fletcher Cox, Brandon Brooks, 
and Zach Ertz. And that's that last one is really interesting because, and I've mentioned this before when discussing the Eagles and how they looked with Nick Foles and how they looked with Carson Wentz. If you want to critique Wentz on the field, you do it through the tight end position. Zach Ertz was without question, undoubtedly Carson Wentz's favorite target to a fault. As good as he is, meaning Ertz, he was used as if he were Jerry Rice and prime Gronkowski all wrapped into one. When Golden Tate arrived, barely used. Alshon Jeffrey did very little early in the season. Nelson Aguilar went from a ton of targets in the first few weeks with Foles to being on a milk carton when Wentz was out there. Meanwhile, Zach Ertz is winning fantasy games all over the place for his owners, getting nearly 200 yards a week. Ertz backing Wentz, if you're a conspiracy theorist, could easily be seen as someone that benefits from Carson Wentz defending Carson Wentz. But here's the deal. We don't know the truth. The anonymous sources used in this article, it's dicey as to whether or how seriously we can take this when not one person's on the record. Now, I understand why no one would be, I don't know how you could be, really, but we have to simply take this reporter at his word in this instance because there's zero corroboration to anything whatsoever. Now, I don't know how much due diligence he did, and that's the thing that I would love to find out. Did he figure out after he got whoever told him this, and I'll assume and, and give him the benefit of the doubt and say somebody did tell him this, all it takes is one disgruntled person that's not a Carson Wentz fan to give you a lot of content for an article such as this. But did he find out whether or not these sources had an axe to grind against Carson Wentz? Were these people that clearly benefited on the field in their own stats from Nick Foles being on the field? Because Foles in that drive, the the drive that ended up beating the Bears, hit six different receivers on seven throws. And Carson Wentz probably would have hit two because he would have thrown to Zach Ertz five times. And then maybe he would have found Jeffrey and he probably would have run another one or that would be the argument against it. But did these people have an ax to grind against Carson Wentz? Does it benefit them potentially financially because your stats and your usage rate and all those things might get you a job somewhere else, if nothing else, but certainly you could command potentially more money when your numbers are more impressive. These are things that I wish that we knew because there's zero corroboration to anything that's out here. The Eagles certainly did not need this extra headache. But if Wentz is what these sources say, that's bad. But it would also mean, and this is the other thing, if this is what Carson Wentz is, that would also basically mean he's like a lot of big-time NFL quarterbacks. Ben Roethlisberger, Aaron Rodgers. That's just two guys off the top of my head that are known to be difficult to work with. We're seeing what happened in Pittsburgh. The fracas with Antonio Brown, the sort of contentiousness with which Ben Roethlisberger has existed as an athlete since his days in college at Miami of Ohio. At least that's when the story started. It may have happened in high school. I don't know. And then Aaron Rodgers, well, we know he can be a bit surly. He can be difficult to deal with. And we're going to see how a young head coach in Matt LaFleur is able to do anything around him. But if you've got sources on the team that go to a reporter, did they like Foles or did they like how they were far more important with Nick Foles? There is an agenda to most sources, especially in a story like this. So finding journalism can be like finding a needle in a haystack. But not just teammates defended Carson Wentz. 
Nate Sudfeld was one of the teammates, by the way. That's the third-string quarterback. And also others, including the ones I mentioned and several others, but sports writers in the area did as well, saying the narrative was predictable, that they saw it coming, and that it only exists to make Carson Wentz the enemy because it's a good storyline for Eagles fans. It creates a lot of content. And maybe they like Nick Foles. Or at least this guy. So what exactly are we to believe here? I'm not buying the story without more than this entirely, but you can't rule it out either. The chorus defending Wentz is stronger, though, than the anonymous sources doing the opposite, but I don't know what the anonymous sources could do. So we don't know, and it's reckless to sit here and speculate. I generally just kind of, I read this article, and I don't know what to do with it because it relies on faith that I'm not willing to hand over, and if it turns out to be entirely false, it doesn't even matter. Because there are still a lot of people out there. I'm not saying anybody listening right now, although I'm sure there are a few. There are a lot of people who probably think Peyton Manning used performance-enhancing drugs due to a random Al Jazeera report from a couple of years ago. Some portion of the population will never not believe what they're told or what they read, even when it's revealed to be demonstrably false. So if this is not true about Carson Wentz, Hugely unfair to him and to the Eagles organization because there are people that are always now going to play this Carson Wentz is a selfish guy card and there's nothing he can do about it. There's no way he can prove his innocence in this case. He could scream it from the rooftops. He could have video evidence and people are still going to say that's not the case. So this is tough. Journalism sometimes not black and white. One thing that was black and white was this Saints-Rams call. But the aftermath of it, guys, can we get over this? We'll talk about that, and I know we've got a phone call. Mark and Franklin wants to talk about the NFL overtime rule. We'll talk about that next. It's a big six on 104.5 The Zone. Sturgill, how much do you love me now, folks? It's the big six here on 104.5 The Zone. I'm Jason Martin, Bless Beyond Measure. 615-737-1045 to join this program. 737-1045 or on Twitter at jmartzone. Just posted something at jmartzone on Twitter for you. It is a thing. And I've already told you it was coming back. I told you I wasn't sure how soon it was coming back. Tomorrow, the Pop 6, the Pop Culture Podcast for me is back. I am... Just so blessed with so many opportunities and people out there, those of you who wrote me or sent some kind of message in some form saying that you missed the Outkick the Culture podcast or some of the things that I was doing in that vein. Certainly, I'm still writing and we'll be writing more and more as the brand continues to expand, probably after the Super Bowl as we're all headed to Atlanta. Another blessing just to be a part of that experience next week. But the Pop 6 is a thing. And it's going to hit tomorrow. And very soon we'll have some subscription links for Apple and everything. Google, wherever you want it. Spotify, we're going to get it to you. So the Pop Culture Podcast is back tomorrow. I can go ahead and tell you. I'll introduce things for you tomorrow. I'm going to review and talk about the Israel 177 trilogy coming to a close with glass. And what I think of that. Oscar nominations, the good and the bad. And True Detective Season 3, which I'm covering in depth at 1045thezone.com slash big six blog. 
writing a whole lot of words about it week after week. And I want to thank HBO for making it available to me early, as they have done on many of their shows for the last handful of years. I'm humbled that they care enough about me covering their stuff to make it available to me. Never want to take that for granted because I still have no idea sometimes how I got as lucky as I did. But all glory to God for that. 615-737-1045. I want to talk about the Saints and the situation in the NFC title game. But first, I want to take Mark and Franklin's call. He has been so patiently waiting. I'm sorry it took so long, Mark. How are you? Man, I'm good. I've, I've enjoyed listening to you while I was waiting, so I appreciate it. But okay, sure. Thank you. I wanted to talk with you. Um, I listened to you Tuesday night when you were talking about the overtime. 100% agree with you. Both teams need to have a possession. Um, but And the coin flip should not you know, dictate. But my question to you, and I, I keep trying to think this out, um, let's say both teams score a field goal or both teams score a touchdown. What then? Because if the next team scores, well, then you're still going back to the coin flip to determine that possession sequence, you know? Yeah. So the only thing I can figure, you know, if you do a time-type situation, but it's, there's always going to be some imbalance and some, something that's not fair. And, and you talked about it ad nauseum on, on Tuesday, yeah. but I just want to hear what your solution was on it. I mean, there's not necessarily. I mean, the, you just have to continue to play the game until one team fails and the other one succeeds. That's all you have to do. There were, like I said, there was somebody that called me that the night before I actually talked about it for the full hour and discussed. Well, you start on the 25, and then the next one, if they tie, you go to the 35, and then you move back to the 40, and then you got to go for two. It doesn't have to be that complicated. Both teams have to touch the football every time. You just have to you have to play a full inning, just to take a baseball analogy. Top half of the inning. Visiting team hits a home run. They're up one. Well, at least the home team has a chance to equalize that. And you can say, well, you should have a good defense. You should build a team with defense. You can't stop them. You don't deserve to win. Well, I think the baseball rule is better because you may have a bad pitching staff, so that's going to put you in a hole anyway. If you have a bad bullpen or you've used up a lot of pitching in the middle innings and your closer has already thrown out most of what you would expect him to throw in that night, then you're already playing with one hand tied behind your back. And that's fine because if they go up and they hit three or four, then you're going to have a tough time answering that. But if you're a team that struggles with pitching, but you have some big bats, at least you get a chance to put your bats out there to equalize. The only problem that I had was, yeah, the Chiefs should have been able to make a stop. You do ultimately hope that a defense can make a stop. But I have a problem in a system where one defense that's struggling after playing four quarters of football and is gassed playing against the greatest quarterback of all time is asked to go out there and stop the GOAT, and the defense on the other side is not asked to do anything if that defense can't stop the GOAT. To me, that is imbalanced, and rules exist to create a level playing field. And I don't understand why anybody would think that it makes sense to just let one team touch the ball, especially when you're basing it on something like a coin toss. Whoever wins that coin toss, okay, if they want to defer, they can defer. They can play defense. I think that adds more strategy. The college rules better. I don't care if it turns out to be a nine overtime game. You can't tell me that it's all about player safety when they've already played for 60 minutes and killed themselves. And then you're going to say, ah, well, you know, the Chiefs it may have suffered injuries or these guys, a couple guys' careers are coming to an end or whatever like that. But this coin toss went the Patriots way. So you better stop them or this game's over. I'm sorry. I just can't get behind that. And I, I still am waiting for the argument that makes me think otherwise. It's just patently unfair. And it's super easy 
to see how it's unfair because one team is asked to do something that the other might not be. If the Patriots, I hate the fact that it was the Patriots that benefited from this because the argument then is, oh, you just don't like the Patriots. I'm not a huge Patriots fan, but I wish that the Chiefs had benefited from this so that you could have seen me still make this same argument a couple of days ago. It is a flawed system that fails on the logic test. Just totally fails it. I don't care if their defense couldn't stop anybody. All right, the New England's defense needs to stop Patrick Mahomes. And if they do, ball game. And then we don't have a question here. There were questions about both the teams that won on Sunday because of what I think is the worst rule in sports and maybe the worst call we've ever seen in sports. It is definitely imperfect. Sports is imperfect. And these Saints fans, boy, are they ever mad. Benjamin Watson, tight end for the Saints, has put out a statement. I'm going to read it to you when we come back. And then I'm going to try and get to the end of this story that will not die. Folks, Patriots, Rams is happening next Sunday. Deal with it or don't watch it. But it's a wrap at this point. And it's time to move on. I know you're mad. I know you're hurting if you're a Saints fan. I get it. Sometimes it just goes that way. We'll talk about it to finish the show next. It's a big six on 104.5 The Zone. Final segment, big six, a little Jack White for you. Missing pieces. I'm Jason Martin. I'm on Twitter at jmartzone. 615-737-1045. Ryan Albany's behind the glass. So... Let me just go ahead and read this from Benjamin Watson. Actually, you know what? I want to do something else real quickly, too. I don't get it, and I probably should not even dignify this, but Vanderbilt fans, calm yourselves down. And I'm not saying calm yourselves down about last night's loss. You can definitely be upset about that flagrant. It was a bad call. The hook, I thought that was two guys that were going for the basketball, both of them sort of pulling on the other one. But you can make your argument there. And I'm sorry that you lost the game, but Vanderbilt fans, more so than anybody else, for some reason, just feel perceived slight when it's not there. I got a DM. My DMs are open. You can hit me at jmartzone with anything. And it said, your UT bias is amazing. Show some respect for Vandy. And this is not like an outlier. This is a common thing. Whenever you say anything about Vanderbilt, you haven't said enough about Vanderbilt. What did I say off the top of this show? I said they should be super, you guys should be super proud. Every Vandy fan should be incredibly proud of that effort last night. You guys dealt with something so unlucky to start this season. You had so much hope, and now, you know, it's going to be a tough way to get into the tournament. If you have a shot at it, you're probably going to have to do it through the SEC tournament. But I said, Bryce Drew coached his guts out. Those kids played great. I said, great stuff about Vanderbilt. And then somebody says, I have UT bias. Do you know who I am? I'm not saying I'm not biased in favor of whatever, but I'm not a Vols fan at all. I'm a Western Kentucky grad that also attended North Carolina State University. And yeah, Go ahead and pull the punchline. I pull for Alabama. I'm certainly not a Tennessee fan. I'm not carrying water for the Tennessee Volunteers here. 
but Vanderbilt fan gets all up in Vanderbilt's feelings. He gets all up in his own feelings and just assumes that everyone is against you. It's not that way, I promise you. That was a heck of a basketball game last night. It was a privilege to watch it, and it was a privilege to watch your kids play as hard as they did. My job's to sit here and just tell you what I thought of the basketball game. It's not bias against Vanderbilt and for Tennessee that I said that the reason Vanderbilt lost is because they turned the ball over three times in the last four possessions of regulation and they shot 13 for 21 from the free throw line, including down the stretch where they struggled and Grant Williams himself went 23 for 23. I don't know what slight you're looking for, but it's not there. And now to Benjamin Watson's statement. Here's what he said. Commissioner Goodell, we all realize that football is an imperfect game played, coached, and officiated by imperfect people. What occurred last Sunday in New Orleans, though, was outside of that expected and accepted of the norm. Your continued silence on this matter is unbecoming of the position you hold, detrimental to the integrity of the game, and disrespectful and dismissive to football fans everywhere. From the locker room to Park Avenue, accountability is what makes our league great. Lead by example. We are waiting. I love Benjamin Watson. He's an overt believer to a fault. Probably the most contentious thing that happened all weekend long in this country, and there are still ramifications being felt from it, is what took place at the March for Life involving the Covington Catholic High School students and the Native American protester. March for Life is certainly a divisive issue. Benjamin Watson was tweeting his support for the March for Life. That's a bold statement to take. I met Benjamin Watson on Radio Row at the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. Just a tremendous human being. But this got to stop, guys. This Saints no-call story has exhausted itself. And some people are approaching losing their sanity over it. We got a lawyer in New Orleans filing a lawsuit. We've got a dude purchasing over 10 billboards in Atlanta basically to tell the NFL and everyone driving through there, me included next week, that they blew the call. Pro Saints, this Super Bowl is a fraud. We got people demanding, including Benjamin Watson here. Roger Goodell addressed this publicly as if there's anything he could possibly say that would appease those who are angry. It was an awful call, objectively. Maybe the worst call in the history of the league, the worst no call. But what do you want the NFL to do about it? Come out and say they got it wrong so you can what? Confirm what's already been confirmed by Al Riveron to Sean Payton? I don't care how many Saints players back the fans and these people on social media trying to point to a rule where Roger Goodell could technically void the result of the game, change the result, force it to be replayed. There's also an addendum to that rule that basically says, no, they're not on a judgment call ever. But they were, you know, there are people that want this game to be replayed this Sunday before the Pro Bowl. One... That's not going to happen, like zero chance, nor should it, because how many teams would then say, well, the call that happened against us was pretty blatant. Can we replay that game from 2006? This was an egregiously terrible call. But you cannot make or enforce rules based on a worst-case scenario. It has to be based on what actually happens. This was the worst call we've ever seen. You're probably not ever going to have a situation this bad again. And ladies and gentlemen, there are going to be sometimes things in life that baffle you and leave you in complete disarray or total disgust 
or pure wonder. But you can't plan for those moments. That's not how you live your life. This was hideous. It was horrendous. It was egregious. It was preposterous. I just went full Jackie Childs from Seinfeld. And yeah, it most likely robbed the Saints. I'd say 97% chance they win the game if that call is made. Maybe even higher. Maybe it's 99%. The rule change to reviewing P.I., that is absolutely something that should happen. One coach is challenged on a judgment call. Potential booth reviews on scenarios such as the one we saw on Sunday within the final two minutes. That said, the Saints might be the guinea pig, and they might have been a guinea pig that got sick in the cage, and maybe we're going to throw out that brand of food that made them sick, but they're the ones that got sick. They're not the ones that are going to be cured here. This game ended four days ago. Sports TV and radio shows are still talking about it as if something could change or they're just still screaming about it. It's over. It's done. It should not have happened, and it did. Steps need to be taken to fix it. But Patriots-Rams, I promise you, ladies and gentlemen, Patriots versus Rams is going to occur in Atlanta next Sunday. I promise you, folks, the Saints are going to be watching that game at home. The problem with over-talking this is that no one disagrees here. You can't get four people in a room to agree on virtually anything in 2019. But you've got a 100% unanimous feeling the Saints got screwed here. And unfortunately, that feeling and that truth plus a buck will get you a cup of coffee. It's time to turn the page on this. we got lawsuits, people demanding recourse, asking for the NFL to publicly have a press conference about it. That's what Benjamin Watson wants. He wants accountability. What accountability? What are they going to do about it? Give me a break here. There's not a single thing the league could say right now. They know it was blown. They know it was a bad look to end a great game. And I'm sure they're sad it happened. But what on earth gets accomplished if they say something here? Absolutely nothing. Because the reaction is just going to be, duh. I mean, do you think the league should actually address this? Should they have, the, should they have on Monday publicly? It's a done deal. It was unfair, but it's a done deal. A guy called me a few days ago, was upset because I said, those are the breaks. I don't know what else to say. I did an hour on it, but there's no way to fix it. You're not replaying a game. You're not voiding the result. You're just getting yourself worked up into a frenzy with no way to stop it except for time to pass. So you're in mourning, I guess. But let's stop with these billboards and these lawsuits and this cursing and that the Rams are frauds and all this nonsense, except that they got it badly wrong. Maybe that crew should not work for the NFL anymore. Look at the PI review situation, but that's only going to help the future. The present, I'm sorry to say to Saints fans, the present is now past. I feel bad for the Saints fans, but it's time to try and get over this. Maybe don't even watch the Super Bowl if you can, even though I bet you will. On the way out the door, let's make you smarter. Tennessee overtime win last night. They've won 13 in a row. That's the longest streak since 1923. And Grant Williams, 23 of 23 from the free throw line last night. Just a second player in Division I history to do that. The other, Arlen Clark, Oklahoma State versus Colorado. He went 24 of 24. So that close to the record for Grant Williams. What a performance by him. We will see you tomorrow on the Big Six.